Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hi, this is Marion Bartoli. I'm Mats Villander. This is Mary Carrillo. I'm Stan Wawrinka. I'm Leighton Hewitt. I'm Andy Murray. This is Yannick Noah, and you're listening to the Tennis Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to the Tennis Podcast, day nine of Wimbledon Relived. Um, a very special one indeed, or well... <laughs> hopefully a very special one indeed a match that I think pretty much everyone that's had even the most passing interest in tennis at any stage of their life is probably aware of one of the most dramatic and iconic Wimbledon finals of all time between the world number 125 at the time the wild card and three-time beaten finalist Goran Ivanovic and the losing final uh, finalist from from the previous year and two-time US Open champion Pat Rafter it's 2001 of course 2001 is where we were yesterday as well but i've got new facts david no way. I've, yeah, there are no lengths that I won't go to to make this podcast excellent. <laughs> I mean, you, you had about 12 facts yesterday. Yeah. What else I should say we've also spoken to both finalists, Goran Ivanovic, Pat Rafter, as well as Charlie Eccleshare that was there that day and Ivan Lubacic. Um, so we've got that too. But m- more importantly than all of it, let's find out some other things that weren't worthy of going in the podcast the first time round that happened in... Uh, 2001. Uh, George Bush was sworn in as the 43rd President of the United States. Uh, Silvio Berlusconi won re-election in Italy, so big year for right-wing heads of state. Um, The International Olympic Committee awarded Beijing the 2008 Summer Olympics. Charles Ingram won a million pounds on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire before having it snatched from him um, and being accused of cheating and later fraud. Um, and Reading lost in the Division 2 playoffs to Walsall 3-2 in extra time at the Millennium Stadium, and I was there. Well, that's all right, because I'm from Walsall, so quite pleased about that. Good. Right, OK, were you there? No. No, no. but my granddad was a director, Went so all, I'm delighted. Dragged my dad all the way to Cardiff for that. It was um, those were the Pardew years. There's no need. To, like, there's no need to dwell on that. <laughs> it's a bit like Goran and Rafter, though, isn't it? Sort of, there's no loser there for the tennis podcast. Is that true? That's, that's definitely not how it felt either now or at the time. But anyway, we did go. We got automatic promotion the next year. 
So thank you, Alan Pardew, for that. Um, Matt, do you remember this match? Are we in Matt's memory territory yet? No, afraid not. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I'm very, very aware of the match. This is probably the match before my time that I've watched the most, I would say, and I'm most aware of the stories surrounding it. But no, we're still in 2001, so we haven't really moved on in time from yesterday. We've um, we've got a lot of audio for you today. Um, we've just listened through all of it and decided, you know, we, we just want you to hear it all because although it's a, a story that pretty much everybody in tennis has told at some stage... Um, I don't know. Some some of what we've got for you today tells it a little bit differently in perspectives that that we've not heard before, David, and lines we've not heard before, despite being on the Champions Tour for about eight decades between us and seeing doing countless interviews with Goran and Pat and and bigging up countless rematches of uh, of that famous two thousand and one final. How many press releases do you think we've written over the years, David, about a rematch between Goran and Pat? Several, yeah, I'd it's, say, several. It's definitely into double figures. <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, funny enough, when we were trying to work out how, how best to tell the story, we weren't actually planning to get Goran and Pat on a few, a few weeks ago. We thought, well, I everyone's mean, but, heard them tell it before. We thought, let's yeah. let's give a different take on it. Yeah, which and we've got a different take on it. But then a, a couple of days ago, somebody said, what about we try and get Raftron because it would be interesting to hear his take. And I, let me tell you, it is. It's, it's amazing uh, when we've actually heard it. Way better than I expected. No offence, Pat. Um, but then this, this last night, I ended up 2 a.m. I was supposed to watch the first four sets of the match. I ended up watching the lot uh, whilst drinking at 2 a.m. and crying uh, and watching it and thinking, I've got to f- find out what Goran was thinking at that moment and that moment. So this morning, gave him a call. Name drop. Okay. <laughs> Sorry about that. Well, what can I do? I did. Dr- drinking whilst watching tennis at 1am sounds worryingly like uh, Lost Law Years Mark II. It was, it's worth it. I say I don't mind if I have a re- total regression right now. It was worth it. Um, you've also been speaking to Ivan Lubicic, David, with whom you actually watched that final in a players' lounge in Gstaad. Um, and we'll hear more about that experience later. But first of all, let's hear from Ivan Lubicic, obviously a, a fellow Croatian on on the Goran backstory um, and his memories. Well, first first of all, of, of Goran's first Wimbledon final back in 1992. I remember being in the refugee camp in in Croatia, watching that final, and and you know, uh, being being devastated, you know, seeing him losing that final because uh, everybody felt he, he has it. You know, Andre was not known as a grass court player, and 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 I, if I remember correctly, I think Goran was was favorite, and uh, you know, looking back now, everybody you know is kind of saying you know that was the most important moment of Goran's career, meaning that if he would uh, would have won that that uh, that Wimbledon, that he, he would probably end up winning multiple slams. Of course, we cannot know that. But uh, the fact is that uh, I'm sure that it had a huge impact on, on Goran's career afterwards. And then, you know, him being so young, he was 21 only at the time. You know, I'm, I'm sure it scarred him for the rest of his career. You say that you... You watched it in a Croatian refugee camp. 
give give me give us an idea yes. of, of what Goran meant to people in Croatia back then. He was one of those that you you almost feel like he doesn't exist for real. You know, he was he was so far ahead anything we had in Croatia that I remember first time seeing him live, uh, alive. So not live, but like in person in 1995. I could, you know, it was very emotional moment. You know, 92 and uh, that period. I mean, we, our country was was in war. You know, so I'm sure that he felt the weight of of the country on his shoulders because he was uh, one of the rare sportsmen who who were representing our young country and and you know really showing that flag around the world mm. and his story and we, it ends so happily in 2001 at Wimbledon but those years I watched the 94 final there was the 95 semi-final against uh, against Sampras and then there was the 98 final when and I don't think I've ever seen a player look as sad uh, at a presentation as Goran did that day what and by then you wouldn't i guess you would have known him because you were you were becoming a player what what were your memories about that journey and what he was going through definitely the feeling was after that 98 final that was kind of his last chance he was playing great he was playing well i still remember that big beard that he had and you know it was it was it was devastating you know um and him you know having problems with that shoulder that it was bigger and bigger I think everybody kind of felt, okay, he's never going to get it, you know. So uh, that blow that, that you know, in 2001, I think absolutely nobody expected, you know. And, and if you will remember the incident that, that happened in Brighton in 2000, end of the year, where he, he had to retire because he didn't have any more rackets to play, I really thought, honestly, that that's, that's the end of his career. Uh, he was 29, but, you know, you'll, you'll remember that back in those years, it was normal to retire you know, at 30 or 31 or something that was considered as, as an old age. So um, I, I felt like 2001 was kind of the last year of him and that he was going to go around and play some tournaments. But uh, definitely I didn't expect him to be, you know, competitive at the level that he ended up being. Mm. And when he started the journey during Wimbledon, I mean, the players he was beating... I mean, it's kind of a nightmare draw when you look at the players he was going to have to play. Um, what? When did you start to think this this might actually happen? Well, the the thing about Goran and Wimbledon, it was never really about the opponents, you know. Uh, other than Sampras, you know, it was always about him. And and I, I remember, you know, we we. We spent some times uh, early, early before the rounds. I would go to his um, apartment where he was staying. We would spend some time together, and then I lost quite early, so I left. I think uh, after the second or third round, uh, and I remember him, you know, feeling good about his serve. You know, he really like he was feeling his serve great. You know, something clicked, you know, in a positive way, and and he was enthusiastic about. You know, that Wimbledon, you know, he felt like, obviously, finally, no pressure in Wimbledon. He got a wild card. He's just happy to play. And his serve is working. And and uh, when I say his serve is working, I mean, <laughs> that 30 ace is a match. So he was, he was unplayable, you know. So it was definitely not... Uh, you know, it was not about the opponents, and and and, and um, he felt he was he felt special. You know, he felt like something good can happen now. Of course, now you know, twenty years on, 
We talk about him winning that Wimbledon. I don't think he expected to win Wimbledon or even thought about it, but he did expect at some point, I think after second or third round, he did expect that he's going to play well. It's going to be very difficult to beat him. It wasn't about the opponents. It was it was about Goran. That's such a a pithy, perfect little bit of analysis, isn't it, from from Ivan Lubacic there? Lot to lot to take in. Um, you know, it's it's impossible for us to for us to understand really what it what it's like for for Goran and and many other uh, players from the Balkans to to have spent their formative years in a in a war torn country. You know, that's the case for for Novak Djokovic as as well as you know many other champions. Um, and it it certainly that aspect is is a big part of the the Goran Ivanovic story. Mm, it is, and he we talked about it during the Agassi show a few days ago. The the challenges that he he faced trying to focus on tennis, but also try to be the flag bearer for his country, both literally at the Olympics and and in spirit throughout the world as as he travelled around. And he was such a passionate guy, and he he could beat everybody. And okay. Agassi edged him, but he just couldn't get past Sampras. I mean, that's that's three, two finals and a semi-final at Wimbledon, and the ninety-eight one. He really should have won that. He was he was the better player in in I think in most of it, to be honest. And and as as Ivan references the the big beards that he'd grown, and he'd got long hair and a headband, and and he just looked watching him stand there with the the plate, as he called it. Uh, I don't want another plate. You know, he'd always talk about this. I just, my heart broke for him at that moment and really never thought in a million years that he would ever win it after that moment. It's like everyone talks about the rain in this tournament, saving Goran and that kind of sense of destiny about it. But maybe Federer taking out Sampras was another really big helping hand in getting Goran finally over the line, you know, and, and the way we talk about would Federer have a French Open if it weren't for Suddenling? Well, would would Goran have a Wimbledon if it wasn't for Federer taking out Sampras? I mean, it's just it's just a big deal in this tournament, Sampras, you know, the big obstacle moving out the way. Just to fill out the full backstory in case anyone's not aware of it, um, and Ivan Lubacic alluded to a lot of it there and, he he was ranked 125 in in the world. He'd he'd had to to take a wild card from the All England club uh, in order to get direct entry to the main draw. And you know those things are all <laughs> not ideal in terms of Goran's situation at the time. But there are there are low lows that his his ranking doesn't quite tell you about. There's you know as, as Ivan Lubacic said there there was the tournament in. Brighton, where he got defaulted uh, for having insufficient equipment after breaking all his rackets. There was his experience of losing in qualifying at the Australian Open less than six months before this Wimbledon. And I've heard him describe this as the lowest of the low points because he was scheduled on a court that he didn't know existed. Um, and I don't know if he was exaggerating for comic effect, but he said that he got lost in a car park looking for the court. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he, yeah, I've heard him talk about, you know, being on the flight back from Australia after that chastening experience and thinking, 
I can't do this anymore, man. This isn't what this isn't what being a professional tennis player is about. <laughs> yeah, I think he said I don't even feel like a professional tennis player doing this, giving me the the getting my own balls and all this sort of thing. And um, even two weeks before, uh, he came to Queens and. I was in charge of taking the players to their interviews and he lost in the first round 6-3-6-4 to Christian Karate of Italy and I brought him into the press conference after that. There were two people in there and he sat down and he was laughing at his own total inability to beat people, his own tennis incompetence. And, uh, I mean, it was, it was kind of sad but also hilarious that this really great player um or at least you know at wimbledon on grass was going to queens on grass and lo- losing to an italian clay quarter and just looking finished and it was it it had become a joke amongst people people weren't even turning up to his press conferences two weeks before he won wimbledon Blimey. <laughs> two two people in a press conference Um, and he found it funny as well (laughs) i'm never sure who that's more awkward for the player or the journalist or the two people yeah yeah (laughs) yeah um so he starts making his way through through the wimbledon draw as does pat rafter on the other side of it um and we all remember the rain that year don't we it was what eight years before they they finally unveiled the center court roof we remember the the rain most iconically as interfering with the semi-final between goran Ivanovic and, and tim henman a match that was played over the course of three days the the second friday right through to what was supposed to be men's finals day on the Sunday. They played the women's final on that Sunday, Venus Williams getting the better of Justine Enan. And then the men's final for just the second time in open era history was due to rain to be played on the second, the third Monday, rather, the People's Monday, as it turned out. All the tickets being made available for sale on that Monday morning, 40 quid ahead. Um, completely unreserved seating. So it was just a bun fight when everyone uh, got in the stadium to take their places. Queuing overnight for the tickets, obviously, demand far exceeded supply. And who was one of those people queuing for tickets? It was, well, our very own Charlie Eccleshare, no longer with The Telegraph, working for The Athletic now, but still very much engaged with tennis and uh, friend of the pod. So Matt spoke to Charlie about his experience um and yeah his memories of that incredible people's monday me my brother and our friend dan we were watching it we're like well we just got to go this is we're never going to get this opportunity again um and so yeah we went over on the sunday night and camped out and it was it, it really was an amazing vibe that evening as well like it because everyone had taken this pretty spontaneous decision everyone no one there thought they were going to be watching the Wimbledon final um come the end of the tournament and loads of Aussies loads of Croatians and people from all over um and yeah it it did have that kind of festival feel to it and yeah just such you know how the best things are spontaneous ones you're not expecting it was just like I can't really believe we're here on Sunday evening and tomorrow for the first time in all of our lives and the only time, I mean, I, I've been lucky. I've gone back. I've seen a Wimbledon final whilst working, but I've never gone back as a fan. Um, and it, so it did have that feel of like, we're never going to get to this again. Um, 
wow, I can't believe how lucky we are. So yeah, we kind of pitched up and um, and yeah, just kind of prayed for sleep because we just really wanted to get to get to uh, to the Monday morning so we could get in and get our seats and get going. So take me through those emotions on the Monday and how did the ticketing work you know how were you assigned seats do you remember and where were your seats yeah well, this is one of my favorite memories from that day was you basically what they did it was unreserved seating so you got your ticket and then they opened the gates and it was first come first serve and um dan who we were with he was like a champion sprinter he was really really quick <laughs> And he would have been like 17, probably the peak of his running abilities. And, and, you know, bearing in mind, as Patrick Moritoglu was talking about this week, tennis is famously has, you know, a slightly advanced uh, watchership. And that was a younger audience at that final. But even so, we're com- Dan's competing with, uh, you know, a lot of people twice, three times his age. And so the gates are open. And we basically had told him, we decided what seat exactly what seats we wanted. And we decided that basically midway, uh, like more or less on the net, about 10 rows up, so dead central and opposite the umpire's side, because we thought the umpire the umpire's seat might be in the way. And we worked out where that was and basically just sent him on his way. So the uh, the gates open and like a shot, like the gun's been, uh, been fired, off he goes gets us the exact seats we want and uh yeah it just it had that feel i mean the, the thing about like everything coming together so there we are so we've got the seats we want uh i mean we had there were a lot of Aussies around us um so i i don't know i mean we were so confl- i think everyone who went on that day was really conflicted even like the aussies yeah i don't think they begrudge necessarily even either which winning and i think uh the croatians or the goran fans wouldn't begrudge Rafter winning that much. They're both just such likable characters. But yeah, so we're there. And I think it was a noon start. It was an early start because they, I think they were just obviously so desperate to finish and didn't want to take any chances. Um, but yeah, so there we are and we're ready and just, yeah, just so excited. And, and it is, I mean, it's a cliche and you hear it a lot in relation to this final it being kind of football atmosphere, but it did have that feel a bit. Um, it didn't feel like a you know, usual Wimbledon. It, it, it felt a bit like we were at someone else's house and they were out and we were just, you know, <laughs> you know, that the parents weren't there. They'd left us to our own devices uh, and we could kind of just mess around a bit and, you know, make noise, a level of noise you weren't used to Wimbledon final or, you know, some of the rules just went. And, and I just love the fact that the players seem to respond really well to that. Um, and you could just feel that building and uh, yeah, then they come out and, we're ready to go. How much do you think the fans impacted them? Because it strikes me that this match is the absolute antithesis of what we're going to be experiencing, certainly over the mm. next few months, maybe maybe longer with with events, tournaments behind closed doors. What did you what did you learn about the connection between a player and a fan on that day? Yeah, that's a really interesting point. I mean, certainly the way the match went. And the fact that whenever one person got up, the other came back. I do wonder how much that was affected by the rhythms of the crowd, because there probably was a degree to which fans like me, who, you know, weren't especially on one side, you know, we we were kind of rooting for both men. 
I'm sure whoever was down at that time, we then would have supported them. Um, and it's hard to know how much of a lift that would have given them, but it probably doesn't hurt when suddenly, you know, you feel you've really got uh, everyone behind you and that there was such a will for it to, to go to a fifth set, I think. I mean, you know those matches you watch and you just feel from pretty early on that it's going to a fifth set. Mm. Um, and, I, and I always wonder that. I wonder how much the, fa- the, the players think that as well. Um, but it did, yeah, it did feel like we, and again, you know, I'm sure we kind of overestimate our importance to a degree, but yeah, it did feel like we were lifting whoever needed lifting. Um, and so when even Ivanovic does have that kind of mini meltdown in the fourth set, there's a real will to get behind him, get him focused again and, you know, lift him up so we can have the fifth set that we all want. But I, I mean, as well, the, the players talk about it afterwards about the atmosphere and that kind of thing. And it doesn't feel like lip service. You know, I do think they were aware of how special and unique it was. Um, and, you know, that it added, it, it added something massive to, to the occasion, you know, making it so different. And I guess there's, um, a, there's an element here of it being centre court, which is known for its hush, if mm. you like, and the fact that suddenly you had this carnival atmosphere in that I suppose that made it extra special as well had had you had a centre court experience before that I'm just wondering if that was your first centre court experience how sort of unlike the norm that would be yeah yeah I think I'd only been on centre court once before maybe maybe twice but this did just feel like a totally different arena um and I, th- and I think for them, it probably did as well. You know, just the because also you look at it and the colours and everything, mm. you know, there are people in football shirts and all those like <laughs> plastic kangaroos and all of this sort of thing. Like it does, it does just feel, it looks to me a little bit like um, for London 2012 when they played at Wimbledon. So mm-hmm. the branding was different and the colouring was different. And it just, it was like, it's Wimbledon, but it's slightly not. It, it kind of had that feel for me. Yes, it's, um, like, it's like Wimbledon on a trip. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. You just slightly altered the settings a little bit. And how do you look back on it now? Obviously, you've been to a lot of tennis, a lot of other sporting events since then. How does this one compare or stand out in terms of atmosphere and occasion? I think one thing that always for me will make this uh, so special is that it's it's really rare in sport or in life that you can say with any certainty that something won't happen again. But we can say, unless you know, the roof is damaged or something like that, this will not happen again. We can categorically say mm. there will not be a Monday final. There will not be a final that's open to the public, um, all things being equal. And I appreciate that we're in a global pandemic, so making predictions is maybe foolish, but... <laughs> You know that this shouldn't happen ever again, and that to me does always make it stand out. You know that we were part of something that can't really be repeated, and it's so rare, I think, to think that um, with sport. So there is that uniqueness element to it, um, and I think the the spontaneity of it as well—that it all just happens so quickly—and that you know, in the space within twenty-four hours. You're going from watching, you know, watching it on TV, but no real sense of whether, you know, what the deal's going to be for the final. So then suddenly you're there on centre court. Um, 
and it is i do hold it really really fondly like you know it, it, i've probably been to events with more like ferocious atmospheres you know i think of watching football in eastern europe and that kind of thing um but it was it is one of the occasions i remember most fondly like i really and i'm really um I don't know because I don't know that many other people who are there, so it does feel like one of those things where, it's, you know, it's a little bit of a badge of honour. Like, yeah, I, I was at that. I, I mean, amongst tennis fans, I don't think anyone else really. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm not sort of telling people I've just met that. Um, and also, I think because a lot of sporting events I've been to, either I've been working or I've gone as a fan, and often as a fan, you're too tense to really enjoy it because you, you you know you're so anxious and unless a final and they rarely are is like a cakewalk you're going to have moments of extreme nervousness and anxiety because you care so much whereas with this you cared you cared loads but you weren't going to be like absolutely crushed uh if either weren't going to win it was more you were just going to be delighted for the winner so it, it you know it you could just really enjoy it and embrace it. And it's one of those where it's just only positive memories, really. I'm so pleased for you, Charlie, that you uh, got to be part of one of the most special sporting occasions of all time that is certain to never be repeated when my dad said, no, we can't go in queue overnight. Sorry, Kathy. <laughs> I'm so pleased for you. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Being in Switzerland at the time. <laughs> <laughs> and it's true, he does go around telling people that he was there because that's how we knew to speak to him for this. Yeah, he says it's not He says it's not the first thing he mentions in conversation, but it really doesn't sound like it, does it? <laughs> um, thank you to Charlie, though, for for doing such a splendid job of, of recreating it. Because when when I started re-watching that match this morning, and, you know, I've, I felt like I remembered it pretty vividly, it hit me like a wave, that atmosphere, when they walked out onto the court. It just was a a cacophony. And it made me think, I know, I know all the reasons why the quiet and the calm of centre court is celebrated. And I know it's a point of difference from the other slams. And I know I am in the minority here. Most people wouldn't want to change that permanently. But I just always want atmosphere. The more atmosphere, the better. And it just made me think, why can't we permanently get rid of the stuffy old posh people that populate centre court most of the time and bring in the bring in the plebs? <laughs> <laughs> that is that is how the Guardian described it, I think, as kind of the plebs invading the summer palace. It yeah. has that kind of feel. And I think it's it's also so different from any other tennis crowd, not even just the Wimbledon crowd. You know, you've got even like the Davis Cup is amazing, but it's it's almost choreographed in a way, the Davis Cup atmosphere. They come with chants and instruments and they travel together, whereas this is so spontaneous and so reactive to the moment and genuine. And I think that's why it's important to speak to someone like Charlie who was there, because as much as this was Goran's day and Rafter was such a big part of it, the atmosphere goes sits right alongside the tennis as to why this match is memorable. And everyone who was in the crowd that day played their part. Um, and I just think generally they managed to turn an occasion, which let's be honest, if most people 
who were probably watching or thinking about Wimbledon or certainly working at Wimbledon probably thought a Monday final was a massive irritation. It means change flights, changing your hotel bookings, you know, having to go on that extra day. And they've turned it into such a glorious occasion by what they did with the ticketing and, as you said, letting the plebs in. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's just it's just so memorable for the reason of the fans. Do you think the Daily Express are going to quote me on that tomorrow? <laughs> uh, without question. <laughs> I include myself proudly in the pre- pleb bracket, by the way. Yeah. yeah. We are plebs we and are proud. We are plebs and proud. Um, so that was a flavour of the atmosphere, the experience of being there. Just to give me a a few moments to repress my bitterness and swallow it down. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, Tennis Podcast listeners. David here. Now, you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in. Being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well, that's pretty cool. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs, so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering tennis podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. Let's hear from the two finalists, shall we? The two men that created that occasion and rose to it and made it one of the most special in tennis and sporting history. First of all, David's impromptu chat with the 2001 Wimbledon champion Goran Ivanovic this morning. And first of all, Goran talking about the night before the final and that giving him his first inkling of what might be in store for him the next day. And I must warn you, he does use some pretty fruity language. When I went to, to return, my, my uh, because it was still these uh, tapes to watch the movie, it was not CDs, but this uh, 
VHS tapes. So I went to, and it was like a huge line already waiting for the tickets. So I, 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 I saw the night before it's going to be like interesting crowd. But then when I walked in, that was like unbelievable. I, I thought it's not Wimbledon. I thought I, I made, <laughs> I, I went to the wrong stadium. Did, uh, I mean, how long did it take you to concentrate? No, but I, I like this kind of atmosphere. It's just uh, I was so happy that we could start that finally. You know, I was really keen. So it didn't bother me. It was really, really uh, something that, you know, you, you, you really want for the atmosphere to be like that. It's one of those things that I've watched the end of it loads of times, but I haven't watched all of it since. And I, and I was watching the fourth set last night when you when you had the, you had the foot fault and then you had the you thought you'd hit an ace and you kicked the net and it starts to go crazy i mean how were you feeling in the, the fourth set actually i was not going crazy uh, i was more uh, getting out of the system you know i i'm not sure if that ball was was uh, wide or not you know it's i don't know we could yeah, the Hawkeye will be 100%, but, you know, that was close, close call. But, you know, I needed to kick the net to, to get, uh, uh, because I was pretty pretty calm all the time, you know. I didn't, so I was keeping everything. So I said to myself, okay, let it out, but, uh, you know, you can't fuck it up, you know. <laughs> don't, <laughs> don't go too much crazy, you know, because this is the last fucking chance, so you don't want to. <laughs> Going crazy under control, which is which didn't so many times in my career. Let's put it that way. Oh, that's so funny! And so, and then you're in the fifth set, and you finally break serve because. And I didn't realize you were two points from defeat. I didn't realize you were you were what was it? Something like five all love thirty. And I didn't. Yeah, yeah, love. Yeah. What is what was going through your mind at that point? Actually, even uh, even in that that stage, I didn't. I didn't. You know, when you don't think you can, you can lose this match. You know, it's, it's just it's not not happening. Because when you see the last game, I, I watched this last game recently. That's probably the worst fucking game ever in the history of tennis played by two players. What the the, the nine seven game? Yeah, both of us. And especially in the finals of any Grand Slam, for sure the the worst game ever. <laughs> and only why I won that game because he, he, when you realize when you watch it closely, when I watch, the, I could not play worse than I played, but he played fucking even worse because if he played a little bit better, he would break me on zero. So <laughs> actually. Actually, he gave me that game. Actually, he, he here. Thank you, Goran. Uh, this is your time. Because it's a really terrible game. I mean, I, what I was doing that was that was wow. Fuck, like I never went on the tennis court. But he was also terrible in that game. <laughs> to be honest, apart from the one lob. Okay, that lob was unbelievable. Actually, also my volley was not bad, deep, and that lob. But rest, terrible. I mean, the, he was missing some easy shots. I was doing double faults. I was catching the volleys that was going ten meters wide. So we both kind of 
he was actually, I think, uh, shocked how bad I played the game. And then he was also like kind of playing bad, you know. It was a race to the bottom. <laughs> yeah, but really bad game. You know, usually, okay, you choke uh, when his last game, but this was terrible. I mean, I mean, terrible game, really bad game. How you? How were you feeling while it was going on? I, I actually, I didn't. I didn't have a clue how bad was that. <laughs> after you, after a couple of years, when you watch closely and closely, you figure it out. Fuck, that's a terrible game. It's like. It's like if there is a vote of the worst game ever in the history of tennis, for sure there will be one of the one of the games up there in top five most important te- terrible game in the history of tennis. <laughs> <laughs> and, and when that when his return at the end goes into the net, what what goes through your mind? Fucking put a serve in just. A, just put a server, just so he can miss, maybe. <laughs> or, or, you know. So I, I was like, and he knew it, I'm going there. Because when I'm nervous, I'm going more to the to the T than wide on on, on that side. So he was there, actually, kind of. But he kind of, I don't know, pushed it. And, and I was like, fucking finally, man. Finally, you missed. <laughs> Because I will probably miss. Finally, somebody misses against you. In a- Finally, fucking somebody misses. Because for sure, if you put it back, I will miss. Or I, or I will slip. Or or I, because I didn't feel my legs. So for sure, some shit will happen on the, <laughs> on the way to the net. Oh, well, you did it. You did it. Thank God. Right, well, we're gonna we're speaking to him now, so uh, we'll find out what he thought. <laughs> Say hello to <laughs> David. Spoke to Goran this morning. He says hi. He's an asshole. Just tell him that. <laughs> he says hi, and uh, you should go and work on your second serve. That's the message he has for you. <laughs> He's such a dickhead. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a a broadcastable response to that, Pat? Ah. Uh... I love Goran. I don't care. He can say whatever he wants. He's generally a lot meaner than that. Um, so whatever Goran wants to say is all good by me. We, um, you know, you got to laugh about it at the end of the day. But at the time, I had no laughter in me, and it certainly uh, when that final point went his way. So you'd um, you'd you'd been in the pri- uh, in the final the previous year, lost out in four to Pete Sampras. Mm-hmm. Did did you? Did you leave Wimbledon that year with a with a feeling of unfinished business? I don't know. I, I don't ever say, oh, I need to come back and win it. Um, you know, I'm not that type. I'm not that good a player. You know, if Pete could come back or Andre could come back and say, yeah, you know, I'm going to go and I'm going to do it next year. They were good enough. I just hoped to be there next year. And Pete, I choked really badly against. I was probably in some ways closer to winning that Wimbledon than even Goran's match. Uh, I, I felt the pressure a lot, lot more uh, when I got up against Pete and the, um, I was up first set and in this tie break, I was winning really easily and choked. But against Goran, I never really felt like I choked. I just probably misread the situation a little bit, but Goran was too good for me on the day. It just seemed to be Goran's, it was just destiny for him, the bugger. You know, he, he got me. He was too good. You um, you played that extraordinary semi-final against 
Agassi, what I remember about it is that you you were never in the lead until the, the pretty much the the penultimate game, right? Um, that was first on on the Friday, and then Goran's match against Henman followed you, and obviously that ended up spanning over three days, and you got to to put your feet up for those couple of days. How much of the Henman Ivanovic semi final did you watch, and who were you rooting for? Um, yeah, it probably wasn't ideal for me to spend that much time just waiting. Um, generally, you like to keep the momentum going. So um, I can't remember how much of that I watched. Uh, it wasn't going to be really that relevant to me anyway. I sort of knew both players. And I was rooting for Goran, not because I like Goran better than Tim. I'm a big fan of both of them, to be honest. Um I was going for Goran because I didn't want the English crowd um, also there just yelling at me. So it worked out the way I wanted it to work out, um, but the result obviously at the end didn't. And I don't know if it would have been any different if Timmy made it, you know. So um, I, I really don't know. Mm. The um, the final was, was billed as Goran's last chance for, for obvious reasons, 125 in the world, et cetera, et cetera. Did you feel like it was your last chance as well? Well, I knew I was retiring anyway. I was I was done. So it was interesting when it came around the following year because I think Goran was injured or was taking a year off. I can't remember. And they asked me, you know, you're going to come back and play. And Roachie had spoken to me in May and said, come on. My Tony Roach, who was my coach, and said, come on, let's get ready and let's go back to Wimbledon. And obviously I was didn't want to, but I said, all right, let's, let's see how I feel. So I went in there and we did um, – uh, four days of hard or training back into it, and on the fourth, fifth day, I woke up and just said, "Rochi, I'm not coming back in, matey. I'm done. I'm not. I'm not going to get ready. I'm, I, I said I was retired, and I, I really don't want to play anymore." And so Wimbledon, for the first time, I don't think had a a men's finalist or final player opening the the tournament up, which they traditionally used to do. Um, so for me, I was done, and. Uh, it, I knew it was my last chance at Wimbledon. And you knew that going into that Wimbledon 2001, you knew that going into the final? Yeah, I couldn't wait to retire, to be honest. I, I love tennis. I got everything out of it. I tried you know, to be the best player I could. And I wanted. I always had in my mind that I wanted to, uh, to, to leave tennis playing some good tennis. And I also wanted to get on with a different life. And um, not, any, I mean, the first year was tough when I retired. I, I saw the big matches and the big situations, the big occasions, and wished I was there. But after that, I was so glad I um, never went back to it. People's Monday is something that we'll never see again at Wimbledon. Um, do you, oh, that's true. Do you remember your first impressions when you walked out onto Centre Court that day and, and the cacophony of noise? Yeah, I do really well. It was crazy. It, uh, I mean, you know, even when we were, even before the roof came on, we were trying to work out how this situation would ever get to to be reenacted. And you know, obviously, having someone like a Tim Hemman in the final on Monday it wouldn't have been that type of crowd, that type of feeling, because it would have been so one sided. It was split fifty fifty. The crowd was just yelling for for the whole five sets, and I walked out in the court. It was it was mayhem. I I remember winning the toss, electing to serve, and I hadn't calmed down my nerves, and I lost my opening serve, 
went on to lose the opening set. So I hadn't settled well at all and um, probably should have readdressed that opening game, surface game. But I do remember being incredibly nervous like I'd never been nervous before. It was uh, it was really an amazing atmosphere and it was a terrific occasion for a pretty ordinary sort of match. You say it was 50-50. I don't know, Pat. I've I've rewatched that match this morning and you seem to have the majority of the support to me, certainly vocally. And, of course, you I, know, a lot more Aussies in London than, than Croats. Yeah. Yeah, no, you're probably right. I don't know. <laughs> I just felt like it was just bantering going backwards and forwards. It was just singing the whole, the whole match, sitting on the side of the court just going, this is crazy. There's no quiet here. And it, it might have been the case. You're right. Um I don't know. I uh, I just remember it being loud, and I remember it not stopping. Um, but listen, we went and had a beer, a few too many beers at the end, and we all partied with the crowd, so it was a lot of fun. You faced Pete in the final one year and Goran the next. How did mm-hmm. their serves compare? Oh, to me, Pete's had the best ever serve that I've ever come across, and even to this day, I don't know if anyone serves as well as Pete does. It's... Um, it's, it's like with Goran, I, I, if he hit and I picked it right, I sort of was onto it. I felt okay hitting his serve back. But with Pete, even if I read his serve, his ball reacted quite differently off the court. It did a lot a lot of action. There was a lot of spin on it and it was heavy and it was strong and it just felt like I never hit the middle of my racket returning Pete's serve and found it very awkward to get, him, to get on top of his serve. Um, in fact, I never really did. You know all the times we played, but um, Goran's serve was still it was big and was fast, and you sort of just said, "All right, let's just get it back and see what happens." Um, and every now and then, I did get it back. I just never felt that with Pete. Goran said to David this morning that that last game of that final was the worst tennis, and this is a, a direct quote: "the worst <laughs> tennis that two players have ever played in the final of a Grand Slam." <laughs> what do you think of that? Um, well, I don't remember. I remember the whole match being pretty average. Um, I had lost, just lost my serve, so I was pretty flat, uh, to be honest. It was, I was trying to find a way in that last game. Goran was choking. Um, he was, he was just playing the nerves and I was just trying to get balls back, but I just felt I'd, I'd lost a lot of steam after losing my, my serve and being so close a couple of games before. I was only two points away from the match, actually. So, uh, you know, it, it was it was close. It was tight. I was um, I felt deflated by the time that last came, game came around. And the only reason it went to a bit of a lengthy game was because Goran allowed it to happen that way. It's obviously gutting, Pat, that you that you didn't win that match. But but you're okay. You're you know, in your own words, you're you're <laughs> you're bloody fantastic, right? Goran maybe yeah. Goran maybe wouldn't be. Um, if he hadn't won that match, did, does that offer you yeah. any any comfort at all? Yeah, you know, listen, I'm really happy to help Goran out. Although, you know, you know, that's a really good question. Imagine if Goran wasn't. Let, let, let's just say, for instance, I'd won that match, and Goran was a basket case, and I was responsible for it at the end of the day. And. The situation is that I'm okay. I've won a couple of Grand Slams, so I'm, I'm, I'm okay with it. I've sort of got my my little fix of tennis, and I'm doing okay. So, 
Yeah, it's a tough one, isn't it? But gee, that selfishness part of me wants to wants that Wimbledon trophy. Gee, it would have been great to have. How much do you think about that? Not often. It's, it, every now and then, a, a thought or a flashback might come in, and I'm very quick to just push it aside. You know, every yeah, I think for the, about the first five years, I, I was waking up in a cold sweat in the middle of the night, just reenacting or. Or going through the last game at five, a game at five four, on his serve, and just thinking, I wish I'd picked this way. I wish I'd done that. I wish I'd done that, and and that saved me for quite a while. And I, um, he he sort of outsmarted me on a couple of big occasions. Had the wrong grip to make his his return, and he came up with the right serve at the right time. He took a couple of big risks actually, and you know, and that's in hindsight, you know, that that's going. You know, Goran's um, pretty, uh, a pretty courageous sort of player, and he, he he goes for it when the chips get down. And I probably should have read that a bit better. How well did you know Goran before that match? Pretty well. Um, we'd played each other quite a bit in singles. We'd certainly had a few beers together over the years, and we played doubles together. And generally, when you play doubles, you get to know someone's personality. But I always found it hard to read Goran because you know I'd sort of come up to him. And, I'd serve, you know, playing doubles and I'm serving. I'd say, all right, Goran, I'm going to serve down the middle. I want you to lean to this side and then I'm going to fake and we're going to do this, this and this. I'd go through a bit of a structure. And when Goran would serve, he'd go, I serve forehand, I serve backhand. <laughs> and there was nothing there. I said, and? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And I was like, okay, all right. You serve forehand. I'll just sit there and wait to put a volley away, I guess. I've got, I got no idea. It was That was the end of his, you know, his thought pattern. So, I was well aware that he didn't really um, go through a big structure, which which sort of helps in some ways because, you know, you're pretty free to to, to play a pretty loose game where, you know, I I had certain things which I tried to to do and plan out and and certain players have worked really well against, but someone like Goran probably not quite so well. How did your relationship change after that match? And what's it like when you see him now? Yeah, it, it... it never changed. Um, he he's a classic because you know it, it was a pretty moving moment for both of us. But he'll just sit there and just he just literally give me shit. It's unreal. He will he, he's he'll just say how are you feeling. He said I won that. You know that. And it's just a classic. And it's just goring. And I just sit there and laugh. And what else am I going to do? But the way he says it, I mean, it's just goring. You know, remember the press conference he would go into, you never knew what was going to come out of his mouth and you knew it was always going to be entertaining. And that was and, – and, and I love going for that. So what am I going to do? I'm either going to cry or I'm going to laugh. And um, it's definitely a very funny side to it. And can you, can you bring yourself to be happy for him? Yeah, I can. I, I can. Gen- generally happy for Goran. I'm – if anyone was was going to win outside of myself, it was Goran. I remember calling him up before one final. I reckon, did he make the final in '96? He might have played. Can't remember. Or '98 against yeah, Sampras. '98 Sampras was his third. Yeah. Yeah, I remember ringing him up. I didn't get hold of him. Left a message on his hotel phone saying, "Goran, I'm really, you know, really rooting for you. Good luck, mate. I hope you win." Yeah, and you know, Goran, our mates, but players generally didn't do that to each other. Um, but I just felt like I wanted to do it. I think I was over in America playing a tournament or something like that at the time and and was just really gen- genuinely happy for, for Goran to do well. Um, but, I mean, obviously, you know, I, was, I wanted to win, but but if there was ever going to be another winner, it was going to be him. And at the time, 
you know, I've got to sort of deal with it. I'm not happy. And uh, when we shook hands, it all looks like we were best buddies. But it was hurting. I was seething. You know, it wasn't easy. Last question for you, Pat. To tell me some more <laughs> yes. about the uh, the drinks that were had that night. Were you out with Goran or just with the Aussie fans? Uh, no, no, I don't think. Uh, no, 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 I'm pretty sure I wasn't. I um, I always put on a party regardless if I win or lose in, in a final. And we did that with Davis Cup as well. And we just celebrate, you know, the the, the whole occasion, um, the whole event. So we went to the dog. Uh, Went to the dog and fox. We had the pub, the area beside it. Um, there was a some place there, and it was on. Just all the Aussies that wanted to come in, you were free to come in. I remember Richard Branson was there, his son was there, and we had a few drinks and and we just sort of enjoyed the moment and and just wanted to thank everyone for their support throughout that time. It was my last Wimbledon as well, but yeah, it, it's bittersweet as well. I mean, it, it was really it was really touching. You know, there were some really nice sentimental things said, but. It was also very hard to take um, because you were the loser. It's always tastes better when you when you're winning those matches, but at the same time, I, I still I really try to emphasise with all the young kids that you know you've done well, you've done great, you've put everything into it. You got to celebrate, you know, what you've achieved here. Oh, that's so nice, Pat. Thank <laughs> you so much. It's, uh, it's, I'm sorry. I'm Catholic. sorry to make you relive all that, but uh, yeah, no, I'm fun. pleased that. Take it out of David as well. Yeah, I will. I'm pleased that life's uh, good. Stay well over there, yeah? You too, Catherine. The Dog and Fox Wimbledon Village has seen some some things over the years, hasn't it? Could tell some tales. Well, what a tale. What what a conversation. I mean, it's just so interesting. I mean, I I guess I knew bits and and bobs of that, but and I and we've we've spent some time with Pat and heard and we know what a great guy is, what a good good fella he is. But to hear it in those terms and to, to properly get him regaling us with, with what what it all meant to him and uh, and the fact that it was reminds us that it was his final Wimbledon that he wasn't intending to play anymore and and I've always seen that match through the eyes of Goran personally I think probably because hey, I, I knew him well I'd followed his career I'd seen all those losses in finals from over a, a, a nine-year period so to me it was about Goran in his, his words not ending up in a real state for the rest of his life. That's why I wanted Goran to win that final. But when you realise that Pat Rafter had been in the final the year before, he desperately wanted to win Wimbledon. It was bigger to him than any other tournament. Uh, And it was big in Australia. And he was going to end his career. So, you know, you couldn't win and you couldn't lose. It was one of those. Do you know what? Going into that chat, I think I, I know I underestimated the extent to which that loss hurt and still hurts for Pat Rafter because most of the conversations I've I've witnessed with with him talking about that match, Goran's been present for, and as he describes there, the the dynamic is always <laughs> Goran ribbing him, <laughs> and and yeah. Pat just taking it and laughing, and you always get just the being a good sport. just being a great sport about it, um, and and finding it in himself to be happy for Goran because he's aware of that sliding doors of you know how bad it could have been for Goran if he didn't win, but talking to him about it one on one there, and and all of that is still the case. He's clearly genuinely happy for Goran. They clearly have a special relationship. Loveliest man in town. All of that, but there's a, there's an edge and a sadness to his voice, mm. which yeah. I wasn't quite expecting and I feel foolish for that now you know you came two points away from 
from winning Wimbledon. He he wanted to win Wimbledon more than anything, more than more than winning the Australian Open. He said, yeah. and and he was two points away, and and feels like he didn't perform to his best in 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 the moment that really counted. So how could he not be? But it did really strike me this morning. It really mm. did. I also just wanted to remember as well that that match in particular, I think, is we remember it because of the emotion and the atmosphere. It didn't showcase, as they make fun of, it didn't showcase their incredible talent. And when you consider the tennis that Rafter played to beat Agassi in the round before, when he was behind all the way through, broke back when Agassi's serving for the for the match. And he beat him the year before as well and very nearly beat Sampras. He was a heck of a player, Pat Rafter. And Goran, his run to the title, went Carlos Moyer, Greg Rosetsky, Andy Roddick, Marat Safin, Tim Henman, just to get to the final. And uh, and so he played incredibly that week as well. I think Goran is um, amazing talking about that final game. But he doesn't he doesn't do justice to how good Pat Rafter's lob is. <laughs> on on match point down. I mean, it's as much as I agree, it probably is one of the worst games in total. It also has one of the best shots in Grand Slam history. The juxtaposition of the calmness of Pat Rafter in that mind compared with the frenzy that's going on in the crowd and the frenzy that must be going on in Goran's mind and is going on in all of Goran's actions. I mean, I think I think he's been called Vesuvian, hasn't he, Goran? He's uh, his emotions are always close and there's you know, he is he is in tears during basically during the final game, certainly as soon as he wins. I've never seen a man collapse into tears so quickly and um Possibly it's, Goran's dad. <laughs> but it's as much as that is a Goran game, like he his mark is all over that game in terms of the way he's controlling it by hitting some terrible serves, followed by some brilliant serves when he needs it. It's also a very relatable final game. Like if I was serving for Wimbledon, I would be a mess. I wouldn't be able to hold my racket. I would be on the verge of tears. And I think it's that it's what makes it so special that as much as people can recognize that this is Goran's moment they can also see them see themselves i think in Goran struggling and just praying for for the ball as he says for for Rafter to miss you know he needs some divine help to get him over that moment and we've all been there in far far lesser situations and the fact that it's a Wimbledon final just just elevates the tension and the drama and the moment I should apologise to anybody that didn't enjoy, well, Goran and Pat's colourful language, particularly Goran's, um, and definitely apologies to David's mum, who who definitely <laughs> won't have enjoyed it. Um, and we did consider bleeping, didn't we? But it 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 tells a story in itself, doesn't it? Goran's use and choice of language. So we have elected to leave it in and uh, and carry an explicit tag for today. So thank you, Goran, for that. <laughs> and Pat as well. We've got one last bit of insight for you. I said that uh, David watched that match from the Players' Lounge in Gestad and you got a sense, David, of of the sentimental feeling that the players even had towards Goran Ivanovic and his will to win Wimbledon. And, and of course, that had nothing to do with 
negative feeling towards Pat Rafter because no one in the history of time has ever had a negative feeling towards Pat Rafter. He's just that kind of guy. But it goes without saying, I think, that it was it was a win that was popular um, with the other players. And here is Ivan Lubicic recalling that experience of watching Ingestad. Everybody was watching in, in the player lounge. Everybody was watching that final because it was extremely emotional. And um, two most liked guys on tour, you know, um, I, I think most of the people still, you know, hoped and, and cheered for Goran to win because he didn't have one. And, and Rafter came, you know, he was coming from winning uh, US Open 97, 98. So he had his slams, you know, um, but it was extremely emotional. I, mean, I remember crying like every single person in our country when he, he finally did it, you know, and uh, it was it was an incredible moment. And the day after, I actually play, played Roger Federer first round in Kstad and him beating Sampras that year, he was just about to become, you know, one of, you know, what, what we know today. He was playing great. And I actually beat Roger 6-2-6-1 the day after uh, Goran won Wimbledon. This this is how much, how, how inspired I was <laughs> after that that win and, and how, 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 how much Roger wasn't inspired after beating Sampras and losing to him in quarters. So um, it was it was extremely emotional. I actually remember holding having uh, Goran's photo in in, the, in my wallet for some time, you know, until I I think end of that year because he really inspired me. And he, he, it was something that that went beyond just a tennis match or a tennis tournament. Yeah, I, I looked up your results in Gestad that week because I was curious how mm-hmm. how you'd done, and I saw that you'd got this this two and one or one and two win over Roger, and I, I, I wondered whether whether Roger wasn't. I mean, I'm not trying to be disrespectful. I wondered whether Roger wasn't fit, but you 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 said it was you you genuinely felt different because of seeing Goran. Yes, I mean, I, I was I was I was very inspired. I mean, Roger lost quarters in Wimbledon so let's calculate that might have been like Wednesday maybe or maybe because of the rain a little later maybe Thursday so he didn't have a lot of time to get ready for clay courts in altitude in Kstad so obviously he, he really didn't play a good match uh, and I remember actually people uh, whistling him coming when he was coming off the court and, and, and me kind of trying to to, uh, to tell the crowd to be Kind of nice to him because he's going to be a great champion, and, and it's it's surreal actually. Now looking forward, you know everything that happened, but uh, yeah, I mean he, you know, it was a quick match. I, I don't think he even. I think it was less than an hour. Yeah, well, at least it gives you something to remind Roger about if ever he gets too big for his. Oh, place. don't worry about that. I'm reminding him every day, almost. So <laughs> <laughs> it's one of his one of his worst losses in his career. I love the idea of being inspired by a, a fellow sports person to the extent that you carry a picture of them in your wallet. That's that's really tickled me. Have you got a picture of um, Alexander Mitrovic in your wallet, Matt? <laughs> uh, no, I do have a Fulham calendar still. You know, which people have when they're about eight. I I still have mine and he's he's on my bedroom wall but no I mean it, that is amazing isn't it just carrying it's like carrying him in his just carrying around with him all year in his heart who would you have in your wallet david oh oh I mean I I could do with a separate wallet for all the pictures <laughs> that uh, that I that could inspire me um possibly goran but... I mean that that really got to you didn't it watching it 
I mean, you've watched those final games twice in the last 24 hours. Yeah. I, and it's and, got to and every time, uh, yeah, no question. I, could, I, I think I could watch it on a loop and it would get me every time from the atmosphere itself, which does, as you said, it hits you like a wave. You can't quite believe what you're experiencing to the look on his face and the clear signs of what he's going through, trying to, to get over this line that just seems that it's always just a little bit out of reach. And I I remember, first of all, being in the player lounge and the reason I called Lubicic for this interview and asked him for it is because I remember him sitting there with his wife sobbing uncontrollably all the way through the final game, all the way through those juices and advantages. He was in tears the whole time. And by the end of it, he'd got his hands in front of his eyes. He could not watch he just wanted somebody to tell him whether Goran had won or not. And the rest of the room, and his wife was there with him feeling exactly the same, and the rest of the room were mostly cheering for Goran because they were worried about him and they knew what he'd gone through. And then there's a few people that were cheering for, for Pat Rafter. And then the, everybody was saying, Goran, serve out wide. So, you know, all this uh, shouting at the TV. And, and yes, I do remember the next day being on the court when Lubicic beat Federer for the loss of three games and the crowd whistling Federoff. It was really uncomfortable to, to, to witness. And yeah, Lubicic just jumped to his defense immediately in the on-court interview and just, uh, just asked them to be nice to him. Those scenes have presumably been erased from Switzerland's tennis archive the day they booed Roger Federer. I mean, no one's got that footage, have they? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, wow. It's out there somewhere. <laughs> Everything's out there somewhere. Well, that was 2001, folks. We've we've dwelled on it a while. And frankly, there could, we, we could also, and we debated covering even Isovich Henman from 2001 as well. I mean, we really could have stayed a long time, even longer in, in that year, because it was, particularly on the men's side, absolutely epic. And um, it's been a pleasure to be there for a couple of days. And yeah, what a way to commemorate that most extraordinary of finals to get to the, speak to the people that we've spoken to today. I'm, I'm chuffed to bits. But alas, the train rolls on and its next destination, Matt, is? 2004 and the women's final, the, the root of the unrivalry. Maria Sharapova beating Serena Williams. And David, you've spoken to? The man that was coaching Maria Sharapova for many years, Michael Joyce, um, who has some fascinating stories about the player she was back then, the person she was back then, and the player and person she went on to become. Really, really interesting conversation with him. I can't wait. You can, you've, you've got 24 hours till then, David. You can go back and watch... 2001 final on a loop until then if you like i would happily watch it every day i think <laughs> or you can do a load of homeschooling and uh yeah oh yeah make some lunch um it's been a pleasure it's been an absolute pleasure to to cover that final in that detail um and we still got five more of these things to go so let's go and take a deep breath get some rest and come back and do it all tomorrow and we'll see you then hey 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 